uh, happening uh, that I'm going to illustrate in relationship to this phenomenon of the trigger warnings. And I'm not going to go deeply um, into detail about trigger warnings, except to say that the, the request for a trigger warning in the classroom indicates a kind of shift consciousness around the, the, meaning, the, the meaning of pedagogy, the, the expectation of what happens in a classroom, the encounter with the disturbing or the unknown uh, seems to have shifted from being something that you require and you look for when you walk into a classroom into something that you want to be protected against. So this deep sense of needing protection, I'm going to argue, is hampering our ability to think wildly and creatively uh, on behalf of renewed projects uh, around not just uh, gender but uh, social justice more broadly construed. So in the first half, I'm just going to um, use the example of trigger warnings to make an argument about pedagogy, to say something about what it means to learn, to think, to teach in university. And then in the second half of my talk, I want to revisit a film um, a really beautiful little feminist film from the 1980s that I'm willing to bet almost nobody's seen here, uh, called Times Square. Has anyone seen Times Square? Two of us, thank you. Three? <laughs> All right, I'll take it. Uh, and Times Square seems to be, it comes from 1980, and it seems to be talking about a completely different understanding of feminism than the one that we uh, are you know, inhabiting now. And I want to see if there's something that we can learn from returning to this very punk film um, and the messages that it has to give us uh, about danger and precarity, uh, the city, um, gender norms, sexual adventure, uh, and so on. So, and just to whet your appetite, Times Square was a film that was made by the same producers who made Saturday Night Fever. So it was not an independent little film. It was Robert Stigwood's next film that he produced. Um, and it was uh, promptly, it was made with qu quite a big budget and then dropped for all kinds of reasons after its release so that people saw it for like a few months and then it disappeared from view. But what it contains within it, it are the seeds of a different legacy for gender studies and feminism that we might want to carry forward um, and think about um, um, you know, crafting our gender politics differently. Okay, so let's see. I know this is going to work. Okay, so I just wanted to give you this funny little uh, meme from the internet to say that my work is often engaged with the counterintuitive, and so my last book was, you know, about the art of failure, and it was an argument for failure, uh, saying that in a, in a world where success is all oriented around normativity and profit, maybe there's some reason to look to failure. Uh, for some sort of potent critique of the status quo. And so you might hear some arguments today that um, strike you as counterintuitive, but I think that in many ways that's the point and that's the methodology that I'm going to be working with. So let me give you a few frames um, with which I want to work today on behalf of um, really sort of unlearning certain ways of thinking about um, gender um, the classroom, learning, uh, encounters with the, with the disturbing and so on. So the first question, I have three questions for you. The first question is whether we can unlearn these political structures that, as I say here, keep us locked into our own private systems of pain and pleasure, but simultaneously prevent us from seeing the potential and even the rightness of other systems of sharing and co-experiencing. So in other words, 
Can we simultaneously open up to another logic of being through an activity that is not teaching or learning, but is, as Moten and Hani put it in the end of Commons, study, okay? And I really love this, this uh, use, this different way of thinking about pedagogy that Moten and Hani call study. Study, for them, is a mode of thinking with others, separate from the thinking that the institution requires of you. And it prepares us to be embedded within what Hani calls the with and the for, and therefore allows you to spend less time antagonized and antagonizing, but also locked into a personal relationship to knowledge, you know, where everything is about your experience, your trauma. What would it mean to think about knowledge production through what I'm calling co-experiencing, thinking with, for, and through uh, the other? So that would be, that's one question. Second, can we um, deploy different strategies of articulation within critical thinking to extend and stretch our communications beyond the explicative and away from the performance of diagnosis? And here, what I think I'm trying to ask is, what is the role of the academic uh, in this day and age? And can the academic find more interesting ways of conveying what he or she knows? Can we, for example, call upon rarely used affective registers in academia, like comedy, which I'll come back to in a, in a, a Monty Python moment, um, or passion? You know, what, we're, we don't use all of the different affective strategies that are available to us to communicate, um, and I would say particularly in academia. Um, can, we, can we use these different registers, like comedy or passion, rage or teasing, in order to break away from the self-authorizing seriousness that mires us in what Moten and Hani call academic immiseration. Now, I, hope, I don't know if people know this book, uh, The Undercommons. Does any, has it, did it, a few people, okay. It's a, like a great little manifesto that's arguing, in a way, against the university and arguing that you should be in the university but not of the university. Uh, and Moten and Hani call upon us to steal from the university uh, on behalf of a bigger realm of study that is not limited to university, but takes this project of learning uh, elsewhere. Um, so uh, academia, you could say, sort of stymies thought as much as it provokes it. Uh, and I know you've been there. I know you've been in a classroom where you're like, this should be interesting, and yet, right? <laughs> so, so what are we doing, in fact, to make knowledge into something rote, uh, into something uh, that uh, isn't pleasurable anymore. And why can't we engage pleasure with, um, with uh, learning and pedagogy, pleasure and pedagogy, let's say. Okay, um, and I'm arguing against diagnosis, just saying what's wrong. People who uh, get to think and write and read for a living should have some hand in saying what is to be done. Surely. I mean, if all we want to do is say what's wrong, um, you know, you can pay policy experts to tell you that. Academia has to be a place where people have other kinds of thoughts that are not just bound to rigor and training and disciplinarity, but are also bound to certain forms of inspired, counterintuitive thinking that work against the grain. Now, on behalf of that, um, I really am often quite taken with Ranciere. Uh, I'm not sure how Ranciere plays here in this gender studies environment, but Ranciere often casts the professor as somebody who gets in the way of knowledge. So in The Ignorant Schoolmaster, you remember, he says it's not that the good teacher is doing something 
uh, wrong is that the good teacher does too much. The good teacher impairs the student's ability to come to knowledge on their own terms. And so he argues for an ignorant schoolmaster in order that people kind of get out of the way and allow people to learn. He also um, suggests in relationship uh, to film that we have to, rather than judging the image uh, morally, saying this image is good, this image is bad, this image I don't want to see or I cannot be in relationship to, he says instead we need to engage cinema as part of what he calls an intellectual adventure. And I really love that concept of being on an intellectual adventure and I absolutely think that academia stymies the possibility of having uh, intellectual <coughs> adventures and that we should all be trying to think together, particularly in these interdisciplinary locations, about how to get back to the surprise, the curiosity, the wonder of knowledge production as opposed to this you know, attachment to rigor and training that ensures that one generation after the other trots out the same kind of uh, information in, this, in the same uh, forms over and over again. So how do we allow for surprise, unanticipated outcome, unpredictable effects? So you can hear in that with my emphasis on surprise and unpredictability, obviously I'm going to have a problem with something like a trigger warning. But I want to talk about the trigger warning because I think that it works on behalf of this very uh, tired pedagogical project that has emerged in the neoliberal university and that gets in the way of knowledge production rather than being a vector uh, for it. Now, what's interesting is that the trigger warning is called for by the students rather than by the professor, and therefore pits students as clients against professors as salespeople <coughs> in a neoliberal environment. It makes it seem as if the student is there to say, I want this kind of information uh, given to me in this kind of way. Um, and I'm not blaming students. I'm saying that the neoliberal university makes it seem as if that's the kind of interaction you should have with your professor, when in fact, every time you walk into a classroom, if the professor is doing their job, you should be surprised, you should be disturbed, you should be bothered, you should be angry, you should be hurt in some way by this very different kind of information that you're receiving about the world that you live in. We've said, you know, really since the 60s, that the university is one of the very few places where you're going to get a critique of governmental forms, where you're going to get a critique of capitalism, where you're going to get a very sustained and complex reading of the way in which something like racial capitalism works, right? So if that is the case, then the students cannot possibly be also asking to be protected from the knowledge that the professor is uniquely trained to actually um, share, and share in ways that will not soften the blow. The blow being that we live in a fucked up world, a shitty society, and that you know law doesn't change uh, the, the, that kind of system because law is very often the mechanism that has produced the system that you are criticizing in the first place. So we are going on a twisted path here, the twisted path of the counterintuitive, but we're also, uh, in both sections of my talk, going to be interested in these um, crooked roads, as William Blake puts it. Uh, roads without improvement are roads of genius. So we're not on a project of positivity and improvement and betterment and enlightenment. 
We are in fact on a twisted road where we're going to come to see things very differently in ways that may or may not be uh, welcome to us in the end. So let me just, for basically about, hopefully no more than 10 minutes, revisit this trigger warning phenomenon uh, on behalf of moving us towards a more um, uh, twisted relationship to knowledge. So I wrote this little blog piece. It was no more than in, you know, in my manuscript pages. It was just five pages last summer. Uh, after being at a conference where it was a performance conference conducted in three different languages where there was lots and lots of performance going on that I thought was challenging and amazing and, and queer and exciting. Uh, just to give you an example, there was a young woman from Canada um, who uh, came out on stage naked, drank lots of different liquids that had many, many different colors in them, and then pee painted onto this white sheet, right? So the liquid, she drank enough liquid to now pee in color and it was a sort of take on Jackson Pollock. And, and, I was like, <laughs> and I was like sitting quite near the front for this performance, and it was a real splatter thing. I was like, I don't, oh, young people, you know, what is that? <laughs> but I was, I was intrigued and entertained. The next day, there was another performance um, by, uh, there was a play that was staged by one of uh, Mexico's leading queer intellectuals, Jesus Rodriguez who staged a play about a 17th century intellect, um, intellectual, about a 17th century hermaphrodite who was accused of raping another woman with her large clitoris and therefore asked a surgeon to excise her clitoris in order not to be killed for the crime for which she'd been accused. So it's a kind of heavy topic, but it was presented in a play as a comedic uh, piece. By the end of the day, there were protests against the play. And the protest was that the play was transphobic that it was laughing at people in trans uh, bodies, uh, that it staged a surgery upon a trans body in a, in a cavalier and uh, you know, uncaring way, um, and that the, there was no sensibility around the, the, the different forms of embodiment that we should be attentive to. Now, if there had just been a few people who were protesting and being like, huh, that's interesting, well, let's have a conversation about it. But no. There was a town hall meeting, it was sort of this big. The playwright, who remember, is, is a brown, uh, half-native woman from Mexico who is now being yelled at by white North Americans um, in the audience telling her that she's transphobic. And the organizer of the conference was there also and was also told to be quiet and was told that she was transphobic. <laughs> now, as somebody who's long been involved in trans politics, I was bewildered by this outcome. By the next day, there were long tables, short tables, round tables, all on this topic, people calling for trigger warnings for every single uh, event that we were now going to see. And remember that we had seen a young lady peeing on a sheet <laughs> without any worries, okay? Because I was like, I was still traumatized by the sheet thing. <laughs> and I was like, what, what? Okay, so, I wrote that little trigger piece to try to make sense of something, and that was not the first time that I had been at a conference where people were suddenly up in arms. Um, really, I felt from a place of privilege rather than a place of injury, um, and wanted to shut things down that were disturbing to them. So the, you know, remember, we've had sex wars in feminism. We've had debates around pornography, censorship, 
from Butler to Carol Vance, uh, um, from Audre Lorde, on, uh, to all kinds of people. Censorship has not been the uh, weapon of choice for feminism or women's studies. But the trigger warning debate has, in a way, resurrected censorship as a modality for being in relationship to material that some people in an audience feel disturbing. So that's the context out of which my some of this trigger warning stuff uh, emerged for me. Um, and I wrote this piece, I just, maybe unfortunately for me and for everyone else, I had just been to a Monty Python film festival right after that. Okay, so imagine, you know, the woman peeing, the Jesus Rodriguez play, the, the, the round tables, short tables, long tables, and then I come home and I go to a Monty Python uh, uh, festival, and I'm watching the life of Brian and thinking, well, what would these people have said to the life of Brian? You know, which is a, a comedy about a guy who's mistaken for Jesus and crucified, during the course of which he sings, always look on the bright side of life while hanging on the cross. Okay, so, and I thought, my God, I mean, would we even be able to have Monty Python in this, uh, this day and age? And in fact, even when uh, The Life of Brian came out, it was banned. It turns out it was banned in Norway, uh, who knew Norway was so particular about Christian representation? But it was, and it was banned in Norway, which at that point then Monty Python said, the life of Brian, banned in Norway. And that became like a really good marketing point. Uh, people like, wow, this film was banned in Norway. What gets banned in Norway? So people went to this film. But I wanted to know what, and I'll, I'm going to come back to Monty Python, because Monty Python is a you know, deeply satirical uh, um, form that doesn't necessarily mean to give offense on behalf of, uh, of creating humor, um, but actually pokes fun at certain kinds of social systems of belief, speech, silence, uh, absurdity, uh, ridiculousness, and so on. It's not the sort of stand-up comedy, the take my wife kind of comedy. It's intelligent comedy um, that really tries to actually offer you highly intellectualized critiques in the form of absurd uh, humor. So I want to come back to that because I think that humor is really in danger of being off limits when we start um, making these kinds of gestures around censorship uh, left and right. Okay, so I'll just have um, five arguments for you around trigger warnings. Uh, the first one you already know. Uh, do trigger warnings have a place in the classroom? No, they do not. Uh, you don't get to say what you can and cannot uh, deal with in a classroom. If there's something you really can't deal with, don't take that class. Uh, the, the good professor doesn't always know what they're going to say when they come into the classroom. It's the bad professor who comes in with 25 years of notes that they, they use every single year over and over again and can tell you exactly what's going to happen. A good professor doesn't know from one minute to the next. Maybe they are going to say something disturbing for which they cannot give you a trigger warning in advance. If you want a trigger warning, you don't want to be in a classroom, okay? Number two, what is the relationship between this call for a trigger warning and the concept that without the trigger warning, you, the vulnerable consumer of knowledge, will be traumatized by something, okay? And here I want to say that there is a basic misunderstanding of trauma. Um, and trauma, as we know, has been a big topic in women's studies. Gender studies has really pioneered some of the work on, um, on trauma. But trauma was an, is, is a kind of universal 
um, experience. Nobody goes through life without some trauma, which is not to say that trauma is distributed equitably. It is in no way experienced in the same way by different uh, parts of any given uh, social group. But at the same time, trauma is a universal experience, and therefore every single person in the classroom comes in with some kind, harboring some kind of trauma, and the professor cannot possibly give a warning for every single person's difficult experience. But the other piece here, the other thing to say is that a trigger is not the re-representation of the thing itself, right? So people are saying, well, I've been sexually assaulted, so I can't see material on sexual assault. Well, maybe you can, but that's not a trigger. A trigger is when something seemingly inconsequential triggers your trauma anew. So let's say you were sexually assaulted in a parking lot and there was a car alarm going off. It's the car alarm that would be the trigger in psychoanalytic terms, not the representation itself. But what's happening in classrooms is that people are saying, I don't want to have this material represented uh, because this had happened to me. Okay? Now, if we left out the things that had potentially happened to you that were bad, the very stuff of women's studies curriculums would be out the window. Women's studies is a place that pioneered discussions of sexual assault, of, of rape, of unwanted encounters, questions around consent, right? Um, imagine in you know, the racially charged environment in the US today, if, if, if students of coloring came in and said, I've been a victim of racism, we cannot discuss racism in the classroom. We cannot watch 12 Years a Slave because the scenes are too disturbing. The scenes of slavery should be disturbing. If they're not disturbing, we're in some other kind of representation that we should be questioning, right? You know, if, 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 do you want 12 Years a Slave or do you want Uncle Tom's Cabin? There are modes of representation that make the thing palatable that we apparently don't think is the way to represent slavery. That was a whole abolitionist project to make it palatable, to make it rational, right? So it has to be assaulted in order for it to be about uh, slavery. And you could say the same thing about the Holocaust um, and so on. So when you take those kinds of classrooms, when you take a women's studies class, when you take a, a, a black studies class, yes, you will be in relationship to disturbing material. Not because the material is disturbing, but because you live in a society where that kind of material uh, is created anew every single day. You can look on YouTube and see that material, right? So when, it, when we are dispersing the effect of racism and sexism into individualized experiences of trauma, we are missing out on the opportunity to theorize it systemically, structurally, and to understand why we are part of a society that continues to produce these scenes of injury, uh, damage, and violence. Um, in relationship to the material that was so triggering at the conference I was at, in the, the material on the 17th century uh, hermaphrodite, I would ask this question. Is there a coloniality of the present? A person who is described as hermaphrodite in the 17th century and accused of having a large clitoris is not a transgender person. Okay? Uh, three decades of gay and lesbian studies and gay and lesbian history has made this very point that there are differences between what look like similar formations in different time frames. Men having sex with men in ancient Greece 
is not the same as two guys hooking up in a bar in Oxford, okay? It, the, it, it operates, the, the male homosexuality or male same-sex desire operates very differently in ancient Greece than in, you know, the ramrod down the street or, or whatever it may be. Similarly, gender ambiguity in the 17th century was understood completely differently than in an era where people can get sex reassignment surgeries, where people are using different kinds of pronouns, where we have a term cisgendered for people who are normatively gendered and so on. So is there a coloniality of the present? In other words, are we projecting back onto history uh, things that are commonsensical to us today? Uh, and how do we preserve the otherness of historical distance? Um, uh, and winding down now on this little rant around uh, trigger warnings, What's at stake in these, this is going to become important when I um, talk about Times Square. Um, this last summer, at the same time that I was at my conference, there was a big fight in San Francisco over a club that was called Tranishak. I don't know if, if this, was, this reached Oxford, the news of this fight. But at any rate, Tranishak was a great little bar that has been around for like 15, 20 years in San Francisco. Um, and was owned and run by transgender people, was affectionately called uh, Tranny Shack. It wasn't called Tranny Shack by homophobes or, or transphobes, but a whole bunch of people in the community said that this word was offensive to them, and the club had to change its name to T-Shack. Okay? <laughs> so there's something obviously in the air in queer communities where queer people are turning on each other and are accusing each other of all kinds of outrage, uh, rather than, again, thinking about these structures within which uh, these debates emerge. So I have just like one more thing on this, and then I will wind down with um, a discussion of the film that I uh, told you about. So my last point is just to say that we are so earnest right now, so serious. People are afraid in certain settings to even say anything. Uh, at this point for fear of, and I think that this has a lot to do with online uh, chats where people can't read tone of voice and so on. Um, it, we're, we're in danger of losing tools in our critical arsenal like humor altogether because it's becoming incredibly dangerous um, to simply make a joke. So what I want to do is show you a clip from uh, The Life of Brian, of course, uh, from Monty Python that I believe says something way more complicated about the relationship between political struggle, anti-imperialism, and transgenderism uh, than a very earnest treatise that just sort of grabs, makes a grab bag of things like transphobia, homophobia, racism, classism, just runs them together. Um, in this clip, we're going to see the way in which a group struggles to try to figure out what place uh, um, uh, fighting transphobia has within an anti-imperialist struggle. And yes, that does happen in the life of Brian. We need the volume. Right. 
is nobody's fault, not even their own, that they can have the right to have babies. Good idea, Judith. We shall fight the oppressors for your right to have babies, brother. Sister, what? what's the point? What? What's the point of fighting for his right to have babies? He can't have babies. It is symbolic of us. <laughs> Okay, so you see that they're actually working through the question of what it would mean to fight for Loretta's right to be a woman. Why does he want to be a woman? He wants to have babies. And John Cleese plays the Monty Python role of the interrupter, who said, you know, he's like, well, even if you, we do see you as a woman, you still can't have babies. So what's the point here? But they come to the conclusion that you have to fight for impossible subject positions, not for the clear, you know, obvious subject position that then becomes the revolutionary subject per se. The point is to struggle for positions that you can't even recognize yet on behalf of a future dawning political reality, one that is not here yet, but is still to come. Now, I mean, they're not saying it like that, but with this, you know, kind of really incisive humor, we get to the point that they struggle to get to, where we see that we should be fighting on behalf of, and this is a sort of Zapatista, actually, uh, ethos. You fight for the impossible. Because if you fight for the possible, and the probable, and the thinkable, then you're still stuck in the contemporary epistemology. So you always have to be sort of reaching beyond what you can grasp and what you can get to. All right, so on behalf of that, you've got my rant. You, you, we're, we're arguing for curiosity, surprise, being disturbed, fighting on behalf of the irrational, the impossible, uh, with the undercommons, uh, on behalf of new forms of solidarity that we cannot yet see or grasp, right? For study, study is something that happens among groups that are compelled to speak with one another as opposed to you know, learning that happens in a classroom. For Moten and Hani, Study is something that happens before the teacher even enters into the classroom. And they give this great example of the room being abuzz with conversation. And the pref professor comes in and calls the room to order. For Moten and Hani, study happens before the room is called to order. All of those conversations that are happening simultaneously, that constitutes what they mean by study. So we're going to study right now a film that has been long forgotten, but I think holds within it the seeds of a completely different relationship to feminism, one that is based on slang, uh, on uh, danger, precarity, um, and that is concerned with two young girls who run away together in New York City and turn the city upside down. Now, there are a couple of things about this film that you need to know um, uh, off the bat. It was, as I said, made, produced by Robert Stigwood, had a real budget, so it's beautifully made, although you won't be able to see from the clips uh, that I had to grab off YouTube. There are only two uh, 35-millimeter versions of the film even remain uh, at this point, one of, the, one of which is at UCLA. Uh, the film features two very fine performances, one by a Puerto Rican actress, Trina, Trini uh, Alvarado, and another by uh, Robin Johnson, who plays a very early, very cool butch role. Neither one of these actresses ever uh, got roles again. The director was Alan Moyle, who went on to make Christian Slater's first film, Pump Up the Volume, and was deeply interested in teen rebellion, which is why he made the film. The premise of the film is that um, uh, Nikki 
and Pammy meet on the men in a mental ward of Bellevue Hospital. Uh, uh, Nikki is being put there as a street kid by a social worker, uh, and Pammy has been put there by her father, who is running for mayor of New York City on a gentrification campaign. So what, one of the things that we see in the film is pre-gentrification Times Square, and it's super, super interesting just on that level, um, seeing the sort of the, the hustlers in uh, Times Square and thinking about what Times Square is today. But at a certain moment, about 10 minutes into the film after the two girls meet, Nikki, carrying a huge boom box, puts on the Ramones, I want to be sedated, and says, come on, Pammy, we're out of here. And that's the beginning of this journey through the city. Uh, they start a band, a punk band, call themselves the Sleaze Sisters, and create a whole punk movement uh, as young girls and boys from across the city begin to follow them like a Pied Piper. Their signature act of violence, and it's pretty violent, is that they push TVs out of the window of apartment buildings from up on high. Really, like, quite dangerously, you know, coming close to hitting people, but making this symbolic statement about unplugging from the TV, which in the 1980s was a big deal. Um, and there were a lot of punk bands that had things to say about TV. But it's also about smashing things. It was, it was a violent act that the two girls did not shy away from. At one point, Pammy... Uh, dances in a nightclub. There is no narrative about her being simply exploited or about uh, her, you know, being pimped out. She, we, we see her choose to dance in the nightclub. Um, and there's something in the film about female friendship. Now, originally in the film, there was actually a sex scene between the two women, and it was taken out by um, the studio before it went to press uh, because the producers felt that it would be inflammatory for American audiences to see two 15-year-old girls in a sex scene. When the scene was taken out, Alan Moyle, the director, was so outraged he dropped the film, never promoted it, and it disappeared from view. Um, and his, uh, the, the signature uh, song halfway through the film is Patti Smith, Pissing in the River. Uh, so that's our anthem for thinking uh, dangerously here. Um, and Patti Smith uh, is a big Blake uh, fan, really, and so she's quoting Blake here, she says, should I pursue a path so twisted, should I crawl defeated and gifted? I want to show you uh, three clips in order to just show you the difference in this film from the kinds of sanitized uh, um, feminist productions that come just a few years later. The first scene is one of these long takes that you often see, particularly in 1970s films, where nothing happens other than an es we're establishing character. The two girls are walking through Times Square, dancing with hustlers and pimps who are uh, largely represented as African-American. But the point here, as I understand it, is that in another film within which you have two seemingly white girls, although one is Puerto Rican, walking through a, an area known for uh, pimps and hustlers filled with African-Americans in 1980, they would be seen as endangered. This film does not represent them as endangered, but represents them as more comfortable on the street than they were in the home. It's a critique of the white home with the violences that are proper to that space, uh, and a representation of particularly the way that Nikki, the street butch, is completely uh, at home um, in, this, uh, in this part of town. That in 1980, if you remember reading your Samuel Delaney, Times Square Red, Times Square Blue, was really uh, absolutely filled with what he calls 
uh, subterranean sex worlds that were not dangerous for the people in them, but maybe, as he put it, would be dangerous for a tourist from Iowa. Um, so this idea of danger is very, very relative. And according to Delaney, Times Square has been cleaned up for the tourists from Iowa as opposed to left in its former uh, uh, mode in, in which it was uh, habitable for the people who lived on the streets. That was a, uh, one of the uh, posters for the film. So let's watch this first film that plays out to Talking Heads' Life During Wartime. And you'll see it's just an establishing scene. And we have no volume there. You don't have any volume? It's playing off the laptop, so not playing off. This should be very loud, by the way. Turn the volume down for me now, and I'll just talk over the rest of it. Up at the top there, yeah. Okay, thank you. So um, the the scene goes on, and that's what I also want you to notice how different film film temporality is in the 70s and 80s. I mean, a, a clip like this, you it's, remember, it's made on 35 millimeters. I mean, it's very expensive to shoot a scene like this. But the the the, the scene plays the, the the long take plays itself out to establish the girls as at home on the street. Uh, there's also no fear, they're not worried about being seen as psychotic. They, we saw that clip of the House of Psychotic Women. They actually play off the way in which society has diagnosed them as in, insane, and they say, yeah, we're insane, all right, we're coming for you, okay? So there's a sort of, uh, I will take the insult and I will inhabit it. Um, later on, in the scene at the end, they've run in and out of the, um, you know, the peep shows, and now we see that Pammy has been declared missing. Her father's put out an ad for her. Remember, she is the daughter of the guy running for mayor. Um, and, but the, the sign has already been uh, defaced by uh, fans of the Slee sisters who are uh, quoting the, their uh, idols as saying, no sense makes sense, which is like a punk situationist kind of motto. No sense makes sense becomes the motto of the Slee sisters. Um, Nikki uh, puts a mask on Pammy, essentially turning her into a sort of anonymous figure. Remember in the recent Occupy movement where everyone wears a mask from v, v for Vendetta? Or think about the Zapatistas where everyone says, I am Comandante Marcos, right? The mask is a a, a kind of uh, leveling mechanism to say that this isn't about the individual, this is about us as a group, as um, united in solidarity. So uh, that's the B movie that we see on the marquee, which you would not see now in Times Square. It's all big Broadway musicals. Um, good to know the film came out the same year as Cruising. The LGBT community protested Cruising for being an offensive film because it depicted the gay world as um, uh, torn apart by a serial killer who it turned out was, was gay. But because the LGBT community protested that film, we still talk about it, okay? So there's the irony of protesting and trying to censor something, is that you actually increase 
its notoriety, whereas Times Square, which no one protested, is completely gone. It's disappeared from uh, history. Um, the kind of politics that Times Square makes common cause with is the, and remember, it's made in 1980 on the verge of the AIDS crisis. We are not yet in the AIDS crisis. Was the um, the, the politics that then came to be uh, gathered together under the heading of the Lesbian Avengers? Do people remember the Lesbian Avengers? Their um, motto, "We Recruit," came from when uh, the the right wing Christians in in 1982, 83 were like, "There's a gay agenda in America. Gays and lesbians are recruiting young children." And the lesbian Avengers were like, hey, great idea. You know, we don't reproduce. So they showed up at schools with balloons saying lesbian Avengers and gave the balloons to the kiddies. So it's that's the feminism. That's the lineage that I'm trying to trace here. Lineage that comes through this kind of punk, uh, uh, rebellious young teens um, walking through the city um, and, and playing out to a punk soundtrack. Uh, to the lesbian Avengers we recruit. Um, I'll let this one play also without sound for the moment. I'll ask you when to put the sound on. They make a home for themselves in one of the piers, Pier 56. Uh, if anyone's been to any of the piers in New York City now, they're like huge corporate uh, conglomerates, right? Um, but this is a sort of utopian scene where we see the way in which they've made um, a separate world for themselves. Now, for me, this scene stands in for the missing sex scene. Um, and so the, the, the director probably shouldn't have been so upset that the sex scene was taken out, because it's very clear in this scene that there's an intimacy between the two girls that is sexual, if you want to turn the volume up. And this is obviously pre-AIDS, because they're going to be blood sisters and they exchange blood, okay? One year later, you wouldn't have this scene in a film. Trigger warning, knife. Shaky, I want you to call my name. Just screaming, screaming as loud as you can. You know, like this. Pammy! Pammy! get this beautiful scene of two young girls calling each other's names, right? And it's echoing um, through this, uh, this landscape. It's, you know, for me, it's also a deeply feminist moment where they recognize each other, where they, they bond uh, as friends. It's important that the film doesn't have one female heroine, it has two, um, and that the friendship is front and center. Okay, to conclude, I want to show you this last scene that, you know, I, what in the contemporary context you have to say sort of trigger warning for it because they uh, finally make it to a radio station and they play their punk song over the, uh, over the air. And this is a song in which they make common cause with all the different groups that have been dispossessed in the city by Pammy's father, uh, the mayor. And so they use slang names to name the dispossessed and gather them together under one uh, unruly heading. As you'll see, you can hear it. You want to make Times Square as cold as your icy eye? Why do you want to punish people who aren't like you? You know, at home, I've heard you use these following words. Big, nigger, faggot, psycho. Well, I just want you to know your daughter is one. 
Right, so um, again, this is not a song that we would be comfortable with uh, now, and I'm not saying that we should be, but I am saying that these terms that we recognize as ugly, uh, these terms that we, we want to resist, that we want to expunge from speech, also name modes of dispossession that a song like this puts into relationship to one another rather than holding separate. Right? So too often the terms of oppression are made into completely discrete spheres. And a song like this says these markers of disenfranchisement um, need to be held together under the sign of you know, solidarity. So she's, she, as the mayor's daughter, says, you say these words, you perform this exclusion. What if your daughter identified uh, with this place of dispossession? So in conclusion, instead of uh, trying to get a sense of, um, you know, instead of just trying to be being basically nostalgic for a multi-directional politics that I think did characterize the late 70s and the early 80s, um, instead of trying to just get that back by creating checklists of political goals and identities, by snapping fingers and applauding when we hear the right words and phrases, we might want to return to a politics embedded in the curse or the insult and look to a horizon at the end of a path so twisted where we don't find hero heroes and survivors, but the defeated and the gifted. Thank you.